Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from New Jersey, we have... A lawyer on the phone, Danielle Buckley, which is one of the good ones. Uh, she is a prosecutor for Atlantic County in the state of New Jersey. Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for calling us on the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. It's good to have you here for a couple reasons. Number one, we don't get to hear, just like with police and law enforcement officers, the prosecutors in the media in particular what hollywood puts out is so distorted is so far removed from the truth i don't think people have a really good concept of what you all do i think that that is true i think that it's made to look uh, very easy on tv and made to look much faster than the process truly is uh yeah I, i've been in trials where it was a couple days and then the jury is out for a long time but you watch like Law and Order and all those dun dun shows, it's over in 45 minutes from start of the crime to investigation to successful prosecution. Absolutely, Jay, and that is obviously not the way it's done. In fact, in New Jersey, we have developed a question uh, at the beginning when we question our jurors, asking them what type of TV shows do they watch, and we try and ferret out the ones that show the criminal justice process as something that happens in 45 minutes, uh, because it, just to get DNA back on a case could take six to nine months. Yeah. So, yeah, so I agree with you that it's a distorted view, not an accurate view of what we do on a daily basis plus the other thing is the objection sustained and everything else man i've seen so many movies and television shows where they're objecting over the craziest stuff in the world and that's just not how it usually works Correct, because ahead of time, on TV, you always have that, I call it that Perry Mason aha moment yeah. in a trial, and that rarely happens because in reality, discovery is exchanged. So each side, at least in New Jersey and on the state level, the federal level is a little bit different, they know what the other party has going into a trial. It's not like they can just, in the middle of a trial, surprise 
uh, a defendant or a suspect with, with information. It just doesn't happen that way. So everything is known ahead of time. Uh, you will get those aha moments if you get a defendant who actually takes the stand and you get an opportunity to cross-examine that person. But that doesn't happen that often. That, too, is distorted on TV. But we're going to be talking about uh, human trafficking in a moment, but there's so many things about the whole trial process. When I talked with Danielle quite a while ago, I, I told her as a rookie policeman, the two types of people that taught me the most about trial preparation and how to prepare a good case. And by the way, you get the case that's presented. You can't manufacture evidence. So you, you go with what you got. But we're public defenders at the district level in Maryland and also state's attorneys or assistant state's attorneys at, at the district level. Those are the two that taught me the most about, about trial preparation. Absolutely, and I do recall that discussion, and, and you're right, because they are doing it day in and day out. That is our sole function, is to be able to, as you said, Jay, take the case that we're given. We can't create evidence. We can't manufacture it. We can certainly do additional investigation in the course of trial prep that may assist the case, although sometimes some of that investigation doesn't assist the case. But yes, that's what they're trained to do day in and day out, is to prepare the case to either some type of resolution in terms of a plea agreement or ultimately put that case in front of a jury. And what are the misconceptions? I mean, we could talk about these misconceptions all day long. We, I, I swear, I promise you we're going to talk about human trafficking okay. later on the show. <laughs> DNA, you mentioned that earlier. This is something I have gotten. Of course, we're police. We didn't have DNA. And it's getting like fingerprints off a gun was very, very rare. You're more apt to get fingerprints off a piece of ammunition than you were a gun itself. DNA, it takes a long time to get back and... Quite often, physical evidence doesn't have it. That's accurate. And and particularly, I mean, I I specialized in sexual assault cases for quite some time, including the human trafficking angle. And it is true that that DNA only survives on or within a victim uh, for five days. So if that DNA is not collected within a certain period period of time or that victim doesn't disclose within a certain certain period of time, we're unable to obtain the DNA. So that's something that people are not always aware of. And it's true. People ask all the time whether we can get DNA off of guns. Can we swab them and get a DNA off of a gun? They want DNA on a bag of cocaine that's found on a suspect. Um, And a lot of times, you know, the answer is, is that touch DNA is not quite as easy to obtain as bodily fluid DNA is. Um, But even bodily fluid DNA, like I said, has a lifespan. And then you also have to factor in, Jay, that you have to have enough of it. There has to be enough DNA present for an analysis to even be done. Right. And then you got to match up the person. One of the things I get all the time, I guess it's because of Hollywood and television. People expect in trials they'll they'll say this in social media a lot they were convicted and there's no direct evidence there's no dna there's no fingerprints and how could they convict them well we were taught early on there's a difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence and a lot of cases are built on eyewitnesses and other things the amount of cases that have the slam dunks that had the dna that had the fingerprints that had the hair that had the fibers that have blood that have all that stuff are minuscule 
That's accurate. They, they are minuscule. They're few and far between. And we, too, uh, instruct juries all the time that they can find a person guilty based on direct evidence or circumstantial evidence. And the vast majority of our cases are proven through sub- circumstantial evidence. And it's still a very heavy burden. As much complaining as I do about our judicial process, our criminal justice system, we have a a pretty good system. I would rather, it was the old saying, I'd rather see one one guilty man or 100 guilty men go free than have an innocent person convicted. To get convicted in just about any state in the United States takes a preponderance of evidence. It's not something that happens easily. Absolutely, Jay. And in fact, it takes even more than a preponderance of evidence. It takes evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that jurors really take that responsibility quite seriously. That's been my experience. Um, When they hear beyond a reasonable doubt, and they are instructed that that is a very heavy burden, and all 12, unlike any other area of the law, and our U.S. Supreme Court has just uh, spoken on this within the last week or two, Every single state in the United States, all 12 jurors must agree on someone's guilt. So you can imagine in today's society where things are so divisive, how difficult it is to get 12 people in a room to agree on anything, let alone get them to agree on someone's life and liberty, and they have to pass judgment on on whether or not that person is guilty or not and all 12 must agree if if one if if one disagrees you're the state's trying that case over again and my wife and i have a hard enough time to figure out what we want for dinner this is the law enforcement today show we're talking with danielle buckley prosecutor state of new jersey we're talking about human trafficking and much more don't go anywhere we'll be right back all too often we find ourselves getting asked where can i find other great podcasts do you have any suggestions Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on Law Enforcement Today. You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about Law Enforcement Today, our podcast network, and to download our free app, letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Danielle Buckley, a prosecuting attorney from Atlantic County, New Jersey. Atlantic County, that's where Atlantic City is, right? Yes. Yes, we have uh, 26 uh, sending municipalities in Atlanta County to include Atlantic City. I believe I lived there when I was a very, very young boy around Lyndhurst. I'm not sure if that was the Atlanta County area. No, that's a little bit more west of us uh, in Atlanta County, yes. I don't tell people often I was born in New Jersey. I was born in... <laughs> I, I don't hear that Jersey accent there, Judge. I, I didn't live there long. I was uh, uh, less than a year old when we moved. I was a Navy brat, so we lived everywhere. One of the things we're going to talk about, and I'll be honest with you, this is a a subject matter that I really don't have a good understanding about. We're going to be talking about human trafficking. That's become one of your areas of expertise when it comes to prosecuting, correct? That's correct. And when I think of human trafficking, you know, I I didn't see much of that in Baltimore. At least I didn't think I did uh, when I was a young patrolman until much later on in life when I figured out, hey, a lot of these dancers, 
uh, and the exotic dancer circuit coming from the upper Midwest were victims of human trafficking. They were addicted to drugs. They were shuttled around to and fro. And I'm not saying they were spotless people by any means, but that's one thing. And back then, I had really no idea. And that's absolutely common, Jay. It's not something that was uh, on the radar at the time when you were a, a police officer. Um, it was something that was viewed mostly as vice-type activity, uh, prostitution-type activity. But I want people to understand that human trafficking encompasses more than just the sexual component of it, because I think that we hear a lot about commercially sexually exploited children uh, and, and people who are forced into prostitution. But human trafficking in its most basic form is forced labor. Now, that labor could be in the form of selling sex, or that labor could be in the form of, let's say, migrant work or farm work. So there are two ways that you can commit human trafficking, but it's it's all forced labor at the end of the day. And you are in New Jersey. This not a border state. We would think of human trafficking coming from our southern border, that it wouldn't be an issue in other parts of the United States, but it clearly is. Correct. And historically, when we think of human smuggling, yes, that would be in a border state. That would be uh, the interstate commerce of people. You're moving people in between states. Human trafficking does not require that movement or that transportation in between states. If you do, you may have some federal implications there. If you commit human trafficking across various states, you may have some federal implications there because there is a federal human trafficking statute. But the New Jersey and the state statutes typically do not require movement across state lines. It, it can be the way in New Jersey to violate our statute is through force, fraud, and coercion. So if you are trying to recruit someone to come work for you, either as uh, a sex worker or a migrant worker, and you utilize some type of force, fraud, or coercion then you can be guilty of that crime. And you can see that that definition, Jay, does not encompass any type of movement among state, you know, among state lines or even within the state. But it's the knowing recruitment and luring of someone through force, fraud, and coercion for the purpose of forcing them to engage in labor. Now, when you talked about that, Danielle, one thing came to my mind, and I, I do like history. I'm a bit of a history buff. Was I believe his name was Jack Johnson, a heavyweight boxer, and then he got him on some weird laws for taking a girlfriend across state lines. And So we're not talking about that. That's not what we're talking about with human trafficking nowadays. Correct. We're not. And, and what we are seeing, Jay, and we in Atlanta County, um, we do have quite an issue with human trafficking uh, with Atlantic City and our circuit. It is part of the circuit that people are brought through Atlantic City to, to earn money for the traffickers. Um, and so it's a destination city in that regard. So what we are typically seeing is when I first started doing this back in 2005, we would see the younger girls or younger females um, who were along the track in Atlantic City who would be recruited off the street 
by a trafficker who would pose as, let's say, a boyfriend or pose as someone who really cared about them and was trying to assist them and help them. And then before the person knew it, they would accept that help. And then before they knew it, they were stuck in a situation where all the proceeds that they made, they would have to turn over to the trafficker. They were under the control of the trafficker and the dominion of the trafficker. Now we're seeing that it's happening, that this type of conduct has moved online. And we are seeing that children are being lured online, including males. And I think that that's another misconception that we need to address. Any device that can connect you to the Internet, including gaming systems, which a lot of males use, can unfortunately expose a child or an adolescent to a trafficker. Traffickers are typically looking online for individuals who appear to be lonely, who appear to be loners. They may send out someone who looks like the person they're trying to target. It may be a female who reaches out to you over your Facebook account or your Instagram or Twitter account. And they do it in a way such that they appear to be your friend or as if they're trying to befriend you. And then I like to say, Jay, then they pull the old bait and switch. Once you accept that invitation, it's, well, this is what you're really going to do for us. And that's how human trafficking is developing now and how we're seeing it develop now. It's pretty frightening to think that someone's 10-year-old, someone's 11-year-old, or 12-year-old, 13-year-old, online playing a game, innocently enough, is a target of someone who's a predator. When I say predator, I don't just mean the weird Aqualung guy in the Jethro Tull song. I'm not talking, I'm talking about people that this is what they do for a living. They know how to manipulate, they know how to target, they know how to entrap, and and, and then frighten other person, those people into obeying all their rules. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head, and that, that's exactly what it is, Jay, is to frighten them into obeying the rules. Um, once the person is caught in that situation, there are various ways that the traffickers can keep them in that situation, and threats of force, actual force, threats against their family members, all of that are ways that they can continue um, to exert their control over that individual. Atlantic City and these tourist destinations we have people like in Ocean City where I used to go to in Maryland where you, I imagine that could be a spot for human trafficking. Key West, Florida, Miami. Uh, always see things when a Super Bowl's in town that we have all these law enforcement assets uh, from federal, state, and local on the lookout for human traffickers, for sex workers, for people who are entrapped, enslaved. Slavery or enslavement is a term we hear quite often but not in terms that we're going to discuss, human trafficking, and more. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Don't go anywhere. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We all know that law enforcement, first responders, and military have dangerous jobs. They see and experience traumas that most can't even imagine. And all too often, that takes a toll leading to substance abuse, PTSD, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to helping protect those who protect. 
call 888-991-9725, online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Back to our conversation with Danielle Buckley. Danielle is a prosecutor in the state of New Jersey, Atlanta County, uh, specializing in human trafficking. When I say you specialize in that, that was something that you kind of was either forced upon you or you kind of stumbled into? Uh, it's an interesting question, Jay. I was a, um, a, a young prosecutor. It was my very first trial. Uh, I looked at the case initially as a sexual assault case. Uh, we had individuals from North Jersey who had driven down uh, to a suburb in our county, and they had recruited a 14- and a 16-year-old right off of the street. They had It was two males, and they had a young female with them, uh, much like I said they do on the Internet. They will utilize the young female to befriend the targeted child. Um, and that's exactly what they did, was they had driven down from North Jersey. They came down here to South Jersey. They saw a 14- and a 16-year-old walking on the street by themselves. And they, they came up in the car, and they asked the, the two females, juveniles, if they wanted to party. The girls, you know, bored and, and not thinking anything of it. They vulnerable, and they got in the car. The first thing the trafficker did was take them to a liquor store, knowing that they were 14 and 16. Um, and then he proceeded to take them to a motel in the area. One of the girls, the 16-year-old, got spooked and scared once she got to the hotel, um, and she was able to escape. The 14-year-old was not able to, uh, and the adult trafficker had sex with her and sexually assaulted her. Um, soon after, he said to her, now you're going to do something for a friend of mine. And a third male pulled up outside of the hotel room, and the trafficker told the 14-year-old that she was going to go outside and she was going to perform oral sex on that male for money, and she was going to turn that money over to the trafficker. I looked at the case, Jay, as it came across my desk, as very much a sexual assault case until I began to speak to some of the police officers in Atlantic City who were very familiar with the prostitution trade. And they, one in particular, looked at me and he said, Danielle, you're looking at this case wrong. You're looking at it as a sexual assault with the promoting prostitution as ancillary to the sexual assault. But the reality is, this was a promoting prostitution case. This was before we had human trafficking or a human trafficking statute. So before that, we would utilize our promoting prostitution statute. And he said, this is a promoting prostitution case with the sexual assault ancillary to that. And he said their whole goal in coming down here was to recruit these females for the purpose of sex 
And the fact that he had sex with her in the hotel room is something that traffickers will do. And this is very offensive, Jay. It's not my language, but this is the reality. Because the the trafficker has to, quote, unquote, test out the product before he puts that product out on the market. And so sexual assaults are ancillary to the promoting or the recruitment for human trafficking because that trafficker has to make sure that what he's putting out there for sale is going to earn him money. And so it was at that moment that my mindset switched and I began to become more interested in the topic. And shortly thereafter, our attorney general's office created a statewide human trafficking task force, and my office appointed me to be the liaison to that. So it was a combination of both. It was a little bit of forced on me, but also it was something I was clearly interested in and had been versed in from trying that that case as a young prosecutor. When you were describing what happened, now I know this. I know these things happen. Uh, My mind goes to the typical scenario of the pimp getting the runaway at the train station or the bus station. Maybe I've been brainwashed over the years of watching television and, and movies that that is something to be expected. Part of me, though, is appalled by it, a big part of me. But when you talked about what happened to that 14 and 16-year-old, they're, they're targeted. They're just walking down the street of their own neighborhood, and they're targeted, and they're turned into the pieces of meat to earn money is really all it is. It makes my skin crawl, and and the the cop part of me, the dad part of me is like, let me at him. Give me five minutes of room with him. Now, I know you can't do that. You know you can't do that. And people, this is another misconception. No cop ever wants to be the one that jeopardizes the outcome of case by spending five minutes in a room with that guy. No one wants to do that, and no one's volunteering for that. And that's something you see on television only. So I understand the terms you use, and as, as cold-hearted as it may seem, that's what we're up against. That's what parents nowadays have to be aware of. Yes, unfortunately it is. because and, and as your scenario, Jay, that scenario of being taken from the train station and the runaway, that still occurs, and we see cases that occur like that. Atlantic City has a very uh, busy bus station slash train station, and we had two females recruited from there by a gentleman, a trafficker who had come over from Philadelphia, and that female was, one of the females in that case was 12 years old. 12 years old. And it's, it, I, I hear it all the time. There's a mindset a lot of people have. I, I'm not stereotyping, but in, in suburbia, we'll, we'll have people say, oh, well, she got involved in drugs and she ran away and she was a wild child and she brought it on herself. That's really not true. It's not. They are children at the end of the day, and that's what we have to think about. We have to think about that if they, if we have decided as a society that they are not responsible enough to operate a vehicle until they are a certain age, or they're not responsible enough or mature enough to vote or drink alcohol until a certain age, then I don't know why we would hold them to a higher standard when it comes to this type of activity. They're children. They're impressionable. They're vulnerable. Many of them are 
lacking something at home that makes them even more vulnerable. But at the end of the day, they're children. And so the, the burden is on the adult to do the right thing and to, and to behave appropriately. Um, the child is looking usually for some type of validation and some type of element that may be missing in their own life, which the trafficker initially fills. So I, I agree with you, Jay, and sadly, that perception is out there. Um, the, the case I was referencing with the 14- and 16-year-old, the defense attorney's whole defense was bad girls behaving badly. Well, they're 14 and 16. They're walking in the street of their own neighborhood, like you said. I mean, what did they do so wrong? Did they get in the car with strangers? Yes. Should they have done that? No. But they're kids. They were bored. Somebody offered to party with them. So it's it's out there, and sadly, that's what makes these cases difficult to prove because that perception of they wanted to do this or they somehow, you know, uh, engaged in risky behavior that brought it upon them. It is out there. That perception's out there. And that makes it hard for prosecutors to convict traffickers. And you know, it's up to our cops and it's up to our prosecutors. They're, they're part of a team. They don't actually work hand in hand, but they're on the same side. It's up to them to to protect those in our society that, that are the most vulnerable. And a lot of times, these people who are so vulnerable, especially with our children, they, they are lacking structure at home. Uh, maybe it, it could be a host of things. It could be parents involved in a drug or alcohol or doesn't matter what it is. They're people. They're human. They need our protection just as much as that Boy Scout or Girl Scout or altar boy. And by the way, bad things happen to them, too. We've had episodes of the Law Enforcement Day show where we've had boy scouts and altar boys that have been brutalized and sexually abused for years uh, by these predators different motivation same outcome part of what i think when we have this conversation danielle is yay for you yay for the cops that, that got these young girls and, and did a successful prosecution now we've got years of therapy for these victims to try to get some sort of normalcy in their life there's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. Be right back. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. This is Law Enforcement Today's show, joined by Danielle Buckley, prosecutor from the state of New Jersey from Atlantic County. Think of Atlantic City, then you have an idea of where she is. And Danielle, besides being a prosecutor for many years, has become one of the go-to people when it comes to prosecuting human trafficking cases in that part of New Jersey. And my hat's off to you. That's, that's got to be a thankless job. 
Thank you, Jay. Yes, it is most of the time. Um, so, so to hear that uh, appreciation, I, I very much appreciate it. So, And we worked hand-in-hand hand with, in Maryland and Baltimore, they were assistant state's attorneys. And there's different terms in different parts of the United States. And they all do pretty much the same thing. And I got schooled by a lot of them when I was younger. And then there were times where I became much better at what I did. And there were times, actually, that I was adversarial with state's attorneys saying, trying to force them to try a case. And that, we could have a conversation to take up a whole show about that uh, itself. Because as we said at the start of the show, you have to go with the cases presented to you. As a cop, you, you can't manufacture evidence. So you have what, you, you do the best case you can with what you've got. And then, of course, the state's attorneys or district attorneys or whatever term people use, they want to prosecute, and quite often, we forget about things like time and money and manpower and all that stuff, and people wonder, why was that plea bargain? Why are they out? And I found myself asking the same questions as well. Absolutely, and that is a common theme. It's it's frustrating uh, for for both sides, I think. I think that for us as the prosecuting attorney, there are things that we have to take into consideration that are not necessarily taken into consideration by the police officer. But I can tell you, Jay, that personally, I agree with you, and it can sometimes be frustrating for both sides because um, the officer may not understand the additional factors that the prosecutor has to take in or the district attorney has to take into consideration. But I can tell you that when an officer feels very strongly about a case, that is a strong indicator to me that this is a case I'm going to fight for. I don't like to, when an officer invests their time, their effort, their energy, their heart, their soul into something, I'm not going to be that prosecutor that's going to say, hey, we're not going to go all the way with this. I'm going to take it as far as I possibly can. But some of the factors that maybe are not understood is that we have pressures from court systems that unfortunately, um, I'm going to be real here, that tend to care sometimes more about numbers than they actually do about justice. And so there's an enormous pressure on prosecutors to move cases faster, to move cases faster, get rid of the case, because it's going to move the docket along faster. So there's an enormous amount of pressure on us from that end. I can also speak from working with other prosecutors that for some prosecutors, it's it's to them or district attorneys, it's about how many cases they win and how many cases they lose. But I don't define justice that way. And so some prosecutors may not be willing to take a case that an officer thinks is a solid case to trial because they're, quite frankly, they're afraid to lose. To me, that's not justice. Justice is doing what's best by each and every case and doing the right thing by each and every case. And if that means we got to go in there and duke it out and swing swing in the courtroom, that's fine. But I do acknowledge that there is tension sometimes, sometimes. between the officers and the district attorneys, no doubt. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Uh, Correct. But, but we're on the same side. Earlier in the interview, you talked about those two girls I guess it's your first case of even trafficking that were basically absconded off the street or taken 
Um, they they were sexually abused, molested, and uh, forced into prostitution. And what you said was the defense attorney first claim or standby claim was they're bad girls, bad girls, bad girls, and they brought it on themselves. One of the things I would love to talk about is people say this to me all the time, but the defense attorney says, and it's always the cop's fault, they're wrong, they're crooked, they're shady, they planted evidence. It's when it, you had a saying, when the case is really strong, the defense went after the police. When, when the case is weak, they go after the evidence. That's what they always did. Have you found that people are apt to believe everything that defense attorneys say because they go on television or social media? I think that they place a lot of value in what the defense attorney says, and I think that they place a lot of value on the burden of reasonable doubt. And I think that sometimes they misconstrue that burden, and they make it seem like it's this insurmountable burden that the state can never overcome. And I think that that weighs heavily. I think defense attorneys paint it as this insurmountable burden that can never be overcome, that even if you have a tiny little doubt, you must find them not guilty. And that's not really what the law says. But once it's out... You can't unhear it. So once the jury hears that, um, I think they take that burden very seriously. And if the defense attorney gives them any reason to doubt, I think that they err on the side of caution and they find that person not guilty. And that's part of the reason why I I tell radio stations when I talk about the law enforcement show that it's true crime with a twist. Because quite often, a lot of true crime shows, what they'll do is they'll go to Wikipedia and, and they'll read the the case, and then they'll throw in questions like the defense attorney did. Well, they were bad girls. And start using that as a way of creating doubt and building doubt based off things that never occurred. And then they make a whole show out of collapsing this successful prosecution. And it's not just podcasts or, or radio shows that do that, but television shows as well. Even documentaries on Netflix. You're right. It's quite sickening because you, you don't see them break down the cases for what really occurred. One of the great examples um, are some of the ones that, that I'll be honest, with you, I can't even watch them. Like the, the twins that killed their parents in California. And then you had the millionaire guy who was all over the place killing people. And you had a case in, in Central Park where five youngsters supposedly raped somebody and they're convicted. And then the whole case fell apart based off of a Netflix documentary. Yes. And I'm not here to say, because I don't know, I wasn't there. I haven't seen the case files, and I love police. I really do. But there are some of the first people go, well, here's my opinion, and they don't know the first thing about the case. That is very true. (laughs) (laughs) I love them, but they do it all the time. Or worse yet, Daniel will say, well, if I was there, I'd have done this, and the cop was wrong because he didn't do that. Yes. Does that get your goat? Does that aggravate you when you hear television shows being made that way? It does. It absolutely does, Jay. But unfortunately, because I've been a litigator my whole career, I can't say that it surprises me. But it does get my goat, no doubt. It's extremely frustrating. I feel that, you know, we have enough burdens and hurdles that we have to overcome um, that to then have someone Monday morning quarterbacking everything that we've done and have tried to do to obtain a conviction it is it's extremely frustrating but unfortunately i can't say that i'm surprised by it i want to thank you again for all your hard work i do see from doing a google search there's several things you're you're involved in zero abuse project some other things 
Would you like to talk about those quickly? Thank you so much, Jay. Yes, I have been an independently contracted speaker for Zero Abuse Project. Um, I've spoken across the country on various topics dealing with crimes against children, but mainly on human trafficking type issues. And I've recently become an experteer, a, which is a, a volunteer expert for the Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative. Um, they are doing some great work. They're a non-governmental agency doing some great work in this area. And I have also been very involved in speaking in our local area, not on behalf of zero abuse, but just educating our educators, our counselors, our children, all of that about some of the dangers around human trafficking and just crimes against children in general. If people want to get more information from you, where do they go? They can go to either LinkedIn and they can look up Danielle Buckley, or they are certainly welcome to email me at DanielleBuckley22 at gmail.com. Danielle, thanks so very much for your service and thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. It was a great chance to speak with you. One of the most frequent questions we see is... Where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, Go to letradioshow.com. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. Another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.